Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you as always for subscribing, downloading, rating, letting people know about the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, and by the way, if you want to comment on anything we talk about, you can email us science at newstalk.com or tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science and we get into the weeds with those at the end of the show. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, robots and AI because we are entering an area of uh, of time where these things are starting to be a lot more than just objects. They're giving us opinions. They are seemingly uh, giving us human interaction. We are uh, watching works of art created by them and they're also doing things that our calculators and, and mugs just don't do. So at what point do these machines become persons in the eyes of the law? Well, we, we'll be discussing that in a few minutes' time. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Oren Kennedy uh, join me in studio to talk about what's happened this week. Our first story, Oren, has to do with xenotransplantation, which is a subject I keep coming back to you on this program, even though we've done it to death, because it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And this is a fabulous story, I think. Uh, the summary of it is that there's a group uh, in China across a couple of universities there that have grown a humanized, I'll say what that means in a minute, humanized kidney in a porcine model. And that's a fancy way of saying in a pig model. So it was published in the Journal of Stem Cell, Stem Cell. And that's um, it's a well-known journal with a big impact factor and so you can be, we can be sure that this is a very kind of a strong study, I'll say. And what's the need? So why are they growing kidneys? In transplantation lists around the world, generally speaking, kidneys make up about 80% of the organs that are required. So it's a huge need. Mm. And you, they can be transplanted between people, obviously, because we all have two, you only need one. But uh, there's obviously, you know, there's uh, uh, difficulties in that. And it's much better if you can produce them another way. So what did they do? Um, most animals, if you are going to have kidneys or organs, you grow them yourself. So the first thing that they did was they suppressed, using CRISPR-Cas9 technology, they suppressed these pigs from growing their own kidneys. And then you need to replace it with something. And we, they want human kidneys in this case, so they, use, they needed to use human stem cells. So they use induced pluripotent stem cells to kind of push a stem cell back to when it was most useful, and then they injected it into these animals. And what the result was, um, humanized full kidneys. Uh, when I say humanized, so 50 to 60% of the cell population of the organs were human and the rest were still pig. So it's massive progress. And it means that um, even though at this stage it still couldn't be transplanted with only half of the cells being human and half still being pig, but it's a massive step forward in, in whole organ transplantation. So um, there are some organs that are not very complex. For example, the liver, this large, big lump of stuff. It's, yeah. you know, it's pretty much a homogenous big lump of gook, right? Um, in terms of the kidney, does it matter if it's pig or human? I mean, if you get rid of the immune, if you do immunosuppressant stuff to allow the human yeah. to accept it, yeah. does it matter if it's half pig, half human? I think it does matter because the, and the kidney is a good example actually in comparison to the liver because the kidney is hugely complicated. Right. It's about 70 different cell types in a kidney, mm. you know, so, uh, and it, it really is amazing. And one of the things about these kinds of stories that I find fantastic is you're just sort of letting the biology do its work. So you put these cells in at the start and then you just let them follow their own course. You know, it's not like you're modifying each step along the way. Mm. So um, 
it, it goes through all of these developmental changes kind of on its own. And, and even the authors here will say that they don't know exactly how that's all happening. You just You just let the biology follow its course. But ultimately, yeah, you would need to have, there would still be problems at this unless it's 100% humanized. I mean, are we miles away? I mean, this may not be your area, but are we miles away from just having a sort of a soup of nutrients and maybe, the you know, the stump of a kidney um, that we could then stick the stem cells on and do we like not need the pig at all? I would say that's I would say that's far away. I would say yeah. that's far away. I think this is this is a massive step Kidney forward. You know? Yeah, <laughs> just throwing it out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why not? Why not? But I think this is a massive step along the way. And you know, so if you if you want to put that in context, it's still in another animal. It's still in pigs, and it's still only half human. Mm. But you know, in the scheme of things, and within this sort of sector, I suppose this is a massive step along the way. I think, and it's really positive. Um, Ruth, our second story has to do with. Planetary boundaries. Yeah, planetary boundaries. And this is, I could see your faces go, this I is know. another climate story. I don't know why I give you all the climate well, stories because you do get upset about them. <laughs> well, it's hard not, to, I suppose, for, for everyone. Like it's been a summer of it, hasn't it? Two years mm. of it. And it's kind of no news to anyone that the planet's having a tough time at the moment. And clearly the focus at the moment is on climate change. It is on greenhouse gases. It's on the extreme weather that comes from that. But I guess what scientists are seeing when they look at the planet is that there's a lot more dimensions that we have to consider. So actually back in 2009, a team of scientists at the Stockholm Resilience Centre decided to come up with this concept to try and and look in a very simplified way, they would say themselves, try and look at the key life support systems on a planet that have been there for many hundreds of thousands of years, which is essentially the time frame in which humanity has lived on this planet and I suppose many of the other species that we share it with. So, you know, when, when do we go too far and push beyond a boundary and suddenly the, the place becomes unlivable for humanity. So they've characterised those and over the last couple of years people may have heard we have gradually breached these sort of tipping points or thresholds and you know the scientists themselves will say look nobody can simplify it down to saying when one particular measure is reached we have gone beyond redemption mm. but certainly there are points in all of these measurements of different Uh, characteristics that once we go beyond them it's becoming increasingly unlikely that we haven't done sort of irreparable damage and it becomes increasingly unlikely that of sort of catastrophic change to one of these systems. So I mean they, they encompass things like ozone depletion which is actually one of the things that's doing quite well so I suppose we can always keep that as a positive. Humanity has got together and sorted out ozone. Um, biodiversity loss and depletion chemical pollution, so things like the amount of plastic in our ocean. Obviously, climate change is one of the dimensions. Ocean acidification, and again, we heard only last month how the ocean has reached an all-time high temperature. And of course, that has impacts on acidification, which has impacts on biodiversity. So all of these things are interconnected. Um, But the news this week was it was the first full assessment of all nine planetary boundaries. So there had been assessments before. So when, when the team first brought out this concept in 2019, they said already we had essentially crossed the healthy threshold on three of these, which was biodiversity, climate change and what they call biogeochemical flow. But really, that's all about the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus in the, in the environment yeah. and whether that is sustainable. So we had already kind of passed by those uh, in the rearview mirror back in 2009. In 2015... Another boundary was passed. That was the one on land system change. And here you can think about things like massive deforestation, you know, land that was for for millennia, tropical forests turning into grassland and maybe even desert. And in the analysis this week, which was the first time I said that all nine 
um, measurements were fully assessed, they have said we have gone past six of the nine boundaries. So in fact, um, the only ones that we haven't reached the tipping point on are our ozone, you know, which again, we've, we've pulled back from that brink. Ocean acidification, where we're getting close to the brink, but we're not there yet. And the other one being atmospheric aerosols, which is essentially how much particulate matter is in the air. Mm. Is the air actually breathable uh, for humans? So we're reaching a point now. I mean, we're already seeing in some places where we're seeing massive impacts from from, you know, air pollution, but will it go further? Uh, this is a big question that we don't have a huge amount of time for, but, you know, y- you um, work at SFI where, uh, you know, the communication of these the, the sort of science is really important and, and encouraged and funded, but um, it appears, and we've, we've said this many times in the programme, do we need to do something radically different in terms of how we communicate um, these ideas? It just feels like everything is going wrong and not a lot is changing. Like, do we need to radically change how we communicate to get different outcomes? I mean, I think the whole area of kind of behavioural science and how we get people to not lose hope while still realising the gravity of the situation is a really difficult balance to strike. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I mean, even the scientists that work on this, I mean, they are very careful to say we cannot be definitive here. I mean, this is a crude model, as are many of our climate models. I mean, that you would characterise it as, you know, a patient that has incredibly high blood pressure. It doesn't mean they're going to have a heart attack, but the chances of it happening are much, much increased. But, you know, I think, look... We just have to keep saying we we did ozone is a great example. We sorted that out. These are much more complex, but you know, hopefully we can we can keep going and, and try and the, make uh, the changes. And the degrees of outcome, right? It, it can be bad or it can be catastrophic. Exactly, and we exactly. want to work towards the, the nearer end rather than the farther. Our third um story, Orin, uh, is an interesting one. It has to do with an exoplanet that's been found. And um, perhaps planet uh, plan B. Um what is it? Yeah, so this is uh, possibly a more uplifting planetary story than the previous one. This is uh, another revelation from the James Webb Space Telescope. And I have an interest in this stuff. And even for me, the the James Webb Space Telescope is just fabulous. And it's Mm. getting better and better in what it can show us and what we can learn from it. So it has detected dimethyl sulfide, DMS from now on, in the atmosphere of a planet, an exoplanet called K218b. It's one million billion kilometers away. Wow. And it's, uh, this is a study led by a group in Cambridge, and the study was published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. But they, they detected this compound in an exoplanet circling a different star a million billion miles away. and By analysing the light that comes yeah. through the atmosphere, right? Exactly. I, which I think it's such a cool idea that they look at the light and they, they yeah. judge how it's been shifted in colour and they can tell what's in the atmosphere as a result. Exactly. And that's how they tell anything in, in space far away. It's all, all about light. Mm. So the telescope can detect tiny... Like this is a million billion kilometres away if you can even begin to get your head around, head around that. The light comes into the telescope, they break it down into its constituent parts, a rainbow, and basically anything that's been sort of absorbed elsewhere can be identified. So that's how they identified it in this. It's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Mm. But they're absolutely shocked. And you might be surprised to find that they were shocked to find some dimethyl sulfide a million billion miles away. But they were shocked, the authors, because this basically is, as far as we know, can only be generated by life. That's, wow. That's the story there. Yeah. So dimethyl sulfide on Earth... Uh, for the most part, is generated by plankton in the sea. So if you were looking at our planet from far, far away, you'd see some of this stuff, and it's basically because there's plankton in the sea. So this infers, at least, it's tentative, but it infers that there's life and there's an ocean 
on that planet, which is unbelievable. Really. A really, really yeah. crazy finding. And actually, the authors themselves said, look, this is so significant. We need to just Double hold back. It's always great to hear. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah. they said, look, yeah. we think that this is what we're seeing. We've done all, but we yeah. want the welcoming the scientific community to A, check the work and then yeah. and, and yeah. build on it. But um, really exciting to think yeah. that. Um, now, there may be, we may do some science to, to figure out how we might make DMS in a different way because there have been some false starts in this sort of area. Yeah, yeah there was um, phosphine a couple of years that's ago right, that was yeah. elsewhere and stuff and, and so that was kind of rolled back on a little bit. But either way, I think these things are always fantastic and positive. Just for, just for example, this planet is an exoplanet, which is another thing in this study which is just identifying the fact that planets, rocky planets, bigger than Earth but smaller than Neptune, aren't present in our galaxy but they're actually the most common type of planet around, you know, in the rest of the universe. We're unusual in not having large rocky planets. So it kind of helps us understand how, if there is life there, how it develops on a planet like that. And it it introduces, you know, more new information for us and how planetary science works. Yeah. So I I imagine if if we can verify this and if we start to do some mathematical calculations um, and, and and, and try and figure out, is it, is it possible to make DMS any other way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the next few years could be really interesting because then all eyes would be on this particular planet. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, Ruth, our final story is, uh, it's a real land finally, isn't it? Yes. It has to do with, is it Paradolia? Is Paradolia, yeah, Paradolia. Paradolia. So if you've ever done the sort of game with the kids or anything where you lie in the grass and you look up at the clouds and you try and find shapes, you have experienced Paradolia, which is essentially this very, you know, human thing that we are very good at, which is finding patterns in, you know, where they don't exactly exist. And what we're really talking about here is face pareidolia, which we're particularly good at because we love finding faces in things. And this is a story from a group in Queensland in Australia. And they had done work before to see uh, when people see what they perceive as faces in things, they were more likely to to classify those faces as male faces rather than female faces. So they published this study and then they got a lot of people phoning them saying, I see faces and they thought there was a lot of people who had just given birth. A lot of women had called them saying, just given birth, I think I see a lot of faces and things. So they decided to set up an online study to see if this was in fact true. So they recruited uh, nearly 400 women and they showed them uh, all these different images. So there was 32 images of real faces. They showed them 256 images of inanimate objects, but that had sort of the pattern that you could perceive a face. And then um, 32 objects that had no face like features at all. Yeah. And they asked them to rate on a scale of 1 to 11. I have no idea why, <laughs> I have to say. It slightly bothers me. This one me. goes all the be, way to 11. Uh, yeah, this one might Spinal bother me. Tap fans. But uh, anyway, may, maybe that was why. Uh, and they had to rate how difficult they found it to, to see a face. And what they found was that obviously everybody recognised the faces and everyone didn't see faces in the things that didn't have faces. But the women who were within a year of giving birth found it much easier to see faces in objects, in inanimate objects. Um, and of course, the, the the headline was kind of that you can see it in food, like, you know, you might see it in your bit of toast in the morning. Um, so they're hypothesising that this could be because we know that after women give birth, they have higher levels of the hormone oxytocin, which is kind of a hormone that, that helps women form attachment to their babies. It's kind of the love hormone. And maybe, you know, because it is isn't encouraging you to make connections, you're more likely to see a human face even when it's not there. Um, I mean, I think what is interesting, though, it does, it might sound sort of like a silly study, but, you know, we didn't know before that this kind of ability changed throughout the life course. Mm. And I think it does also underline how that hormonal change that might be going on at different points in your life actually might impact on your ability to make 
social connections. Uh, and, and, and how you perceive the world. It's and, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I think it's an interesting little study, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, well, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland, Dr. Oren Kennedy from ICSI, thanks for joining us. Now, for uh, decades and possibly even centuries, we have often imagined uh, machines as people. And uh, in lots of different ways, we have, through science fiction, imagined uh, animate objects from inanimate objects. Uh, But only recently, it started to become a real question as to whether or not we might take this idea a little bit seriously. In uh, 2016, the European Parliament, it was suggested that robots might be something worthy of personhood. What does that mean? And... Is it time to start thinking that things might be people? Uh, Well, here to talk to us about that very question is uh, David J. Gunkel. He's a professor of media studies at Northern Illinois University and author of Person, Thing, Robot, a moral and legal ontology for the 21st century and beyond. Welcome to the program, David. Um, When I think about this this issue, I mean, it seems to me so blatantly obvious that this is a question we are going to have to figure out much sooner than later, whether or not the machines that we are now interacting with uh, deserve some sort of recognition that they are a little bit elevated above a table, a mug or a chair. Yeah, that's exactly right. And really, we're looking at a situation where kicking the problem down the road uh, is not going to be the smartest or the most intelligent thing for us to do. And that's because we live in a world in which we have to sort out what things are mainly for legal purposes. We need to decide whether something is a thing that we can use and even abuse as we see fit, kind of property, or whether something is a kind of person that has some kind of social standing and is accorded some respect by us. And over time, different things that had one time been things have become recognized as persons. Animals, for example, or slaves in you know previous times. And so the question we're looking at right now is how do we factor in to our social reality these robots and algorithms and AIs that seem to be more than just mere things. Why would we need to consider uh, a machine a, a person if we haven't needed to consider a calculator to be a person? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think there's a number of good reasons for it. One kind of emotional and the other one kind of more legal. The emotional one is that we now find ourselves doing things with our machines that we didn't do with our hammers, with our calculators. When Alexa supplies some information, people say thank you to the device. Um, When people are engaging with various robotic um, technologies that have sort of social presence, uh, we are respecting their space. We are getting out of their way. Uh, We see this with these delivery robots on the streets and on the sidewalks. And so we are kind of having this recalibration of our expectations for what we need to do in the face of these socially interactive kinds of technologies that don't behave like our hammers and our calculators. Which is on the, 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 the flip side to, for that for me is often when I'm swearing at um, my Google assistant for getting something wrong, I often feel very guilty afterwards. Um, yes. So, so this is both sides of it. Correct. Now, on the legal side, it has more to do about how we assign liability and accountability for when things go right or when things go wrong. Let me give you just two examples of how this gets to be complicated, a good example and a bad example. Uh, The good example is if an algorithm writes a amazing piece of music and we have, you know, algorithmically generated music right now, 
The question is, who's the author? Who do we assign the accolade to? Or when uh, DeepMind's AlphaGo beat Lee Sedol at the game of Go, the journalist had trouble trying to figure out who to credit with the win uh, because it wasn't necessarily the engineers who built the program because the program learned how to do its moves by its machine learning uh, algorithm. On the flip side, you have more nefarious outcomes where you have, for example, self-driving cars that uh, cause an accident. And we want to know who to hold accountable for the accident and who can be sued, uh, who can be liable uh, in a court of law. And you can see already a kind of shell game going on where manufacturers, operators, and the algorithm itself at different times has been named as the responsible party. And so sorting this out is going to be really important on the legal side because we want to know who is responsible for social outcomes, whether they're good or bad. That's really interesting because I had thought about the the car idea, but if we think about the AlphaGo, this um, sort of a Chinese puzzle game, but much more complicated than um, than chess, I believe, like more um, more moves than there are in the in the universe. It's really t- uh, difficult game that uh, DeepMind, a, a spinoff of Google, managed to train to to beat the best players in the world at. You can't credit the the coders because. Almost certainly, if the coders themselves were to play the grandmasters of Go, they would fail miserably. So it, it's not Cor- them. It is it is very much the machine that they created that that beat them, and and, and that is that puts that pu- puts that in a, in a frame I hadn't really considered. Yeah, one of the engineers, Thor Grapple, when he was asked after the uh, landmark game that uh, AlphaGo beat against Lee Sedol, he was asked, you know, so what did you guys do to make this thing so great at the game of Go? And his answer was, well, we don't know. Um, We set up a machine learning platform, a neural network, and we used a number of machine learning techniques like reinforcement learning and some other forms of pre-training. And then the algorithm is the one that developed its moves through its own training architecture. And that is something that I think for us is brand new because in the past, if a machine did or didn't do something, it was always the designer who was held accountable. Now we have machines that have a kind of mind of their own and that's where things get complicated. But um, when it comes to music, um, for example, I made some AI music recently. I uh, I told the machine uh, or under art, I told the machine what I wanted and it it gave me a result. Surely the inputter is therefore then the creator of that art. Is, is that not different? So this is what we now call prompt engineering. We have it with the yeah. large language models like ChatGPT. We have it with the image generators like Midjourney and Dolly. And the prompt is a little chunk of text that you supply that then sort of nudges the algorithm into doing something and creating some outcome. But the prompt is just a set of instructions. The actual information, data, processes are all within the algorithm itself. And as a result, you can't necessarily solely credit the prompter as the creator. Although this is where we get into some interesting territory with regards to copyright and intellectual property. Because right now, an algorithm cannot be named an author of a literary work or the artist for a piece of visual art. And it's a question as to whether or not the prompter has done enough to be considered the artist or the author of the piece that is generated by the AI. Oh, so if I I were to write a book using an algorithm, the algorithm can't take credit for it. 
is the is the book then theoretically the intellectual property of the coders who created the algorithm or this is a question we don't know okay. and if you look at um how we're testing the waters it right now is very murky uh there is a legal scholar by the name of ryan abbott who is going around the world and trying to file patent applications on behalf of an ai in different countries and this ai called dabis made a food storage system that he's trying to patent under the name of the ai the okay. ai created a food storage system correct what does what correct. does that what does that mean what does that look like um it designed a way of it designed a set of tupperware basically oh. i mean if to put it very bluntly and it's a brand new kind of way of storing food the ai is the uh, originator of the idea uh, at least according to the patent application and so as a lawyer what he's doing is trying to test in various jurisdictions whether or not the ai can be named an inventor okay. and when he's filed these applications in the us and the uk he's failed and he's failed not because the ai didn't invent the food container he's failed because of the way the law is written hmm. so the law is written in the us and the uk saying basically only a natural born person can be an inventor which means a human being got to just pause there on the um the really fascinating i suppose variety of things that people can do with their lives the, the idea that a lawyer is traveling the world trying to claim that an ai has created tupperware and and therefore give it uh, intellectual property rights for it. that i mean that is an insane fact no but it sounds like an insane fact but actually what he's trying to do is resolve the question that you just asked me how will we figure this out can we find a way to resolve these questions and so what he's doing is really a research project in which he's using the current legal systems to try to find out the lay of the land with regards to resolving this question in, in terms of the car i mean surely that feels like manufacturer fault more than creativity is one thing but responsibility for making a system safe you would imagine the responsibility and burden must lie completely and squarely on the coders who provide a device and say it's safe to use we would hope so and there is some efforts in writing regulation and policy and new laws to try to um uh, make this more codified in the way that we assign liability but at this point in time there is a lot of wiggle room in the current legal structures that allow for a little shell game uh to pass around the responsibility in a way that we get what happens with corporate responsibility when huh. corporations uh do something that's heinous like uh pollute the environment or whatever oftentimes you'll see this kind of shifting of responsibility from one part of the organization to another part of the organization until in the final analysis no one's responsible for anything hmm. and we come out with no sense of justice having been served because some harm has been done but we don't know who's responsible for the harm right i can see this becoming even more problematic as we start consulting chat gpt for decisions we make in business in law and and beyond because Uh, pretty soon we will get really good expert advice from ai and that was probably better than any human could have given us but sometimes that advice may turn out to be bad advice whether or not we can sue the algorithm i guess is is a question within the same space yeah so this is exactly the question because we can already see how in cases of using these large language models some users are actually deferring the expertise to the algorithm and saying well chat gpt told me this and therefore it's a kind of oracle that dispenses with wisdom that is somehow uh unassailable because it must be mathematically correct and true and everything else so yeah we were already seeing some kind of movement in that direction 
So, so the the next move seems to be creating some sort of personhood and rights for artificial intelligence programs, and and as they become very um, easy to interact with, uh, more relatable, um, more human, uh, does that leave us in a very kind of tricky place um, if we are essentially giving life to to inanimate objects, at least in, in at the very beginning, in the, in a legal framework. Yeah, so I think we we already have a very good precedent for how this can function and how it can go wrong. The whole notion of corporate personhood. In the 19th century, we had similar questions about the corporation, and we wanted to figure out ways to hold corporations liable for wrongdoing, but we also wanted to figure out a way to protect corporations, or at least the, the shareholders of corporations, from um, their own exposure to liability when they invest in Um, a particular company. And so we created this notion of legal personhood for the corporation. The moment we're at right now is the question as to whether we need to extend this idea to algorithms, AI, and robots. And this is exactly what the European Union was thinking back in 2016-17 when it proposed this idea of electronic personhood. They were trying to figure out a way to um, allocate tax responsibility and liability in a world where robots and AI are taking more autonomous kinds of decisions, and those decisions affect human beings. This is a long step from um, giving civil rights, presumably, to, uh, to, to an AI. That, that's a completely separate uh, issue. And uh, I suppose, should we develop sentient AI, it probably will rise itself. But this is not what we're talking about. That is correct. I mean, I think we have to uh, distinguish moral personhood from legal personhood. Corporations have responsibilities. They can be held liable for various outcomes. Uh, they also have some rights. I mean, you, you can actually harm a corporation and the corporation can uh, sue you for libel or things like this. But the fact is, is that they can't vote. They don't have other civil legal rights like you and I have. So that their legal personhood is a much more limited sense of legal rights than what you and I would possess as natural born human beings. So do we create a new category in law for like essentially animate inanimate objects? So this is the real question, because our legal systems have been operating with a binary distinction. You're either a person or a thing. Mm. And this binary distinction comes to us from the Romans. It's actually codified in Roman law um, in a book written by Gaius, who was a Roman jurist. And since that time, most European, American, and actually global law has operated with this kind of exclusive binary distinction. Uh, You have to either be a person or a thing. You can see in the abortion debate how this plays out. Mm. Is the fetus a thing or is the fetus a person? And that is a very important legal question because if it is a person, then we have to accord to it certain rights and certain protections that we wouldn't accord to our calculator or our automobile. Right. And right now we're sort of struggling with that categorization. We're sort of the AI and the robot are kind of challenging those boundaries and asking whether um, we might need to have a more fine grained uh, categorization in our moral thinking, but also in our legal thinking that this binary may no longer be serving us in a way that is in our best interest. Uh, Just finally, um, is this a sort of gray area holding back the development of technologies where that that play out in the public realm? For example, we have the technology to make driverless cars happen. Is the the lack of certainty when it comes to who's responsible if there's a crash, is is that something that's holding up the development of autonomous cars? 
It could. You could see situations where certain legal decisions, certain frameworks for regulation and policy could inhibit some kind of deployment. Right now, well, particularly like, for example, in, in, in insurance, you know, um, correct. Do you insure the person, the car, the AI? No, that's exactly right. And insurance is one of the places where you can already see this being played out um, with regards to what is insurable and, and how much risk is able to be taken on by the company who supplies the insurance. We also see it in lethal autonomous weapons. We have the ability to create drones that are completely autonomous, that can acquire their target, launch their missiles all by themselves, and have very little oversight from the commanders. We are not going there yet because we think that life and death decisions should be something that is based on a human decision and not a machine decision. And that might be a place where inhibiting the deployment of certain technologies that we could deploy is actually a good thing since we're holding back on a fully autonomous drone. Mm. Although there is some slight implication in that idea that uh, humans make great decisions uh, in that particular realm, which we know they don't, they don't always do. It's a really fascinating area to to explore. The book is called Person, Thing, Robot, A Moral and Legal Ontology for the 21st Century and Beyond. The author, thank you so much for joining us. David J. Gunkel. Thank you. And, and like, if you extend this idea to relationships like in the movie her which like we're not that far away like there are already ai enabled chat girlfriends and boyfriends that people are having you know some sort of engagement with we're not far from having relationships of some kind with artificial intelligence like what if they do the dirt on you like or what if they um or what if they do something that you know that that causes you a such um such mental harm that you know that you you need to be hospitalized or, or, or something really bad happens. Like, who's responsible there? I think there's really so many moral questions to be answered. Um, right. It's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. I scroll through this massive paper trying to find uh, your comments from last week. If you remember, we were speaking to uh, Professor David Keegan, a consultant ophthalmologist at The Matter, about the eye and how it works and how we can see systemic disease through the lens that we use to navigate the world with our eyes. Fascinating. Porik on Twitter says, excellent chat on the eye. Would love to hear more as you were just getting into the juicy stuff. Perception. I love perception. Talk about it. Do you know what? We'll get David on again. Another says, um, listening, listening to retina specialist David Keegan talk about eye health, incredible advances in the specialty and exciting AI developments. Uh, that's from the Irish College of Ophthalmologists on Twitter. Well, I'm glad you're listening. We were also uh, talking about dust. Uh, we were on the uh, on the phone with Jay Owens, who is the author of Dust, the Modern World in a Trillion Particles. And we found out what dust was made of, which is actually a lot more interesting than it sounds. Uh, and we were talking about Sahara dust and how it can travel all the way to Ireland. Column on Twitter sent us a picture of his car in which he had Saharan dust uh, in Waterville last week, a regular occurrence on the south coast, apparently. And then someone else randomly texted in saying, Jonathan, I saw the most amazing flash through the sky two weeks ago. I emailed Astronomy Ireland and NASA about it. Bigger and brighter than a shooting star with a red and blue trail heading west. A fireball was spotted in the US that day. Fascinating. I'm wondering if anyone else saw it. Sunday, 3rd of September. Love the show, Ali in Trilly Bay. I think that is the meteor that landed on the beach in North Dublin this week. <laughs> and uh, and uh, caused that big crater uh, on the sand. 
I think that's what it was, Ali. I haven't heard of it. In all seriousness, I haven't heard of um, of anything unusual happening. But maybe we'll, we'll give it a... We'll, we'll ring the people and get back to you, Ali. But thanks for, for getting in touch. That's it from us on this week's programme. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thanks to Marisa Sullivan, producing, researching, uh, Simon Keane, John Byrne, Hugo De Silva. I was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.